According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, a department store can be described as a retail establishment that sells a wide variety of goods. These usually include ready-to-wear apparel and accessories for adults and children, yard goods and household textiles, small household wares, furniture, electrical appliances and accessories, and, often, food. These goods are separated into divisions and departments supervised by managers and buyers. There are also departmental divisions of merchandising, advertising, service, accounting, and budgetary control. End quote. I mentioned in my last episode that growing up, my mom, my sister, and I often went to the local mall for something to do, maybe on a rainy or snowy day, or to just enjoy the excitement that was window shopping. If we needed a new pair of shoes, we went to the mall or the shoe store located in the downtown area of my childhood hometown. If we needed a nice dress for a holiday, we also went to the mall. And oftentimes, if we went to the mall to look for something, we would often venture into a department store, typically one-stop shopping for most needs of a family. Department stores often anchored, and still do, shopping malls and could also be found in strip malls. With that being said, there were a plethora of department stores to choose from in the 1980s and 1990s, and today, you will learn about some of the most memorable stores. You'll hear how they got started and what led to their demise. Three words will often be mentioned. Target, Walmart, and Amazon. You will also learn about some of the defunct big box stores, similar to department stores, but typically not located in a mall and with more variety in merchandise at times. So grab your umbrella stroller to push around your screaming children, a comfortable pair of Reeboks, and your hypercolor t-shirt. Here we go. Hello, and thank you so very much for tuning into the Pop Culture Retrospective Podcast, a show inspired by, and in memory of, my big sister Rebecca, and her love for all things pop culture, especially the people, places, and things of the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. My name is Amy Lewis, and I am your captain aboard this pop culture time machine. You are tuning into episode number 26, Extinct Department Stores and Big Box Stores, with an emphasis on the 1980s and 1990s, as well as stores found in the Midwest a.k.a. the Midwest. Even if you are not from the Midwest, you may find this retail archaeology trip to be intriguing, so thank you so much for joining me. This is a continuation of our last show where we discussed defunct mall stores. I came across so much information researching that show that it needed to be divided up into more than one episode. And, like last week, we will do sort of a run-through of some of the most well-known department and big-box stores, many that I have a sentimental attachment to. Are you ready? Let's grab our shopping bags and head out on a defunct retail adventure. The F.W. Woolworth Company was founded in 1879 by Winfield Woolworth. The first locations in the United States were in Utica, New York, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. At first, the merchandise all sold for less than 10 cents. The store's popularity grew very quick, and by the late 1920s, they had 2,000 250 stores. There was a spin-off store called Woolco, which operated in Canada and the UK, but they all closed by 1983. The company would actually go on to purchase Foot Locker, which is still in operation today. Woolworth started to focus less on their retail stores and discount prices, and this is what led to its eventual demise. 
Walmart and Target grew in popularity, and by 2007, the company was out of business. Montgomery Ward and Company was started by Aaron Montgomery, who was a traveling salesman in 1872. Originally, it was a mail-order business aimed at farmers who were looking to purchase items they could not find in their rural communities. In 1875, the company started implementing the satisfaction-or-get-your-money-back mentality, which was really a smart business decision. Catalog sales were incredibly successful. They started being referred to as the Wish Book, with 10,000 items for sale. Competing rural retailers sometimes burned Ward's catalog in public. I think they were kind of envious of his success. The first retail store opened in 1926 in Plymouth, Indiana. The company was so successful that within its first five years of operation, there were 500 stores. In 1939, a company copywriter named Robert L. May created the character of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. By 1946, the store sent out six million copies of the poem as a storybook and was later popularized as a song, which has driven me nuts for my entire life. In 1985, they ceased the publication of their infamous catalog after an incredible 113-year run. In 1987, Montgomery Ward started to push the sale of computer electronics. They opened a few electronic stores called Electric Avenue, just like the famous song. In fact, they used the song by Eddie Grant in advertisements. This venture proved to be very successful. Apparently, they weren't deterred to push the sale of electronics by the failure of Cartrovision in the 1970s. Check out episode number 14 of the Pop Culture Retrospective podcast, where we discussed the VCR and also touched on Cartrovision. Cartrovision wasn't exclusive to Montgomery Wards, but it could also be found at Sears and at Macy's. In 1989, they got into the world of home computer systems. Montgomery Wards was one of the first retailers to carry home consumer products from the likes of HP, Apple, Compaq, and IBM. Retailers like Walmart and Target started to drive competition. Montgomery Ward tried to revamp their image, as you can hear in this commercial. By 1997, the company filed for bankruptcy. The last store closed in 2001, but it relaunched online in 2004 as wards.com. And from what I can tell, that website is still active and you can still purchase items online. Service merchandise was founded in 1934 by the Zimmerman Company. It started out as a five-and-dime store in Pulaski, Tennessee. It had more than 400 stores at its peak, including in my hometown. It eventually evolved into a showroom. It specialized in household items and jewelry. The service merchandise catalog. It's like a who's who of famous top quality name brand items at the lowest possible selling prices. Like the Minolta Auto Pack 450E pocket camera at a true special price of $59.97. The 450E is fully automatic and features a built-in lens for close-ups and electronic flash for stop action. The Minolta 450E pocket camera, now only $59.97 at Service Merchandise. 
We're changing the way America shops and saving you money. It had sort of a unique format for customers. When you arrived, you would receive a clipboard with a carbon fiber order form attached. You could then walk around the store and look at the items available for purchase. They were out on display, so you could try it out before buying. They also had their catalog spread out throughout the store. Once a customer determined what they wanted to purchase, they filled out their form and then turned it into a service clerk who would enter it into the computer system. The customer would then move to the merchandise pickup area, and within a few minutes, their item would come out on a conveyor belt. I believe I purchased a pair of rollerblades, a helmet, wrist guards, and knee pads at service merchandise. Watching it come out on that conveyor belt was fantastic. The thought with this method items coming out on a conveyor belt, is that it would decrease the theft of items from the store. While this was certainly a good loss prevention technique, it did raise concerns about identity theft since customers had to fill out their name, phone number, etc. on the purchase form. Other businesses tried this method of purchasing for customers, but no one was as successful as service merchandise. Unfortunately, the company filed for bankruptcy in 1999, and all of their locations were shuttered by 2002. They currently have an online presence, though, at servicemerchandise.com. They sell jewelry, clocks, and there's also a section of their website called uh, Bar Wine and um, Smoking. You can also purchase a glass lantern that says, Home is where family gathers. Gag me with a spoon. Further, you can purchase a resin cat or dog statue that has wings to give to someone who has lost a pet. Nothing says, sorry about the loss of your pet than something tacky. Or maybe you'd like to purchase their $40 leather business card holder. I know I could use one. Radio Shack was founded in Boston in 1921 by the Deutschman brothers. They originally made equipment for ham radio operators and radio operators on ships. They started to open stores in the Northeast and did mail orders for electronics. At one point, there were 7,300 Radio Shack locations. They claimed that they had a store within three miles of every American household. I feel like McDonald's also made this claim to fame. Anyways, they sold the first mass-produced personal computer called the TRS-80. They were very popular at the time. However, they stopped selling computers in 1993. I remember purchasing several electronic devices here, including an advanced walkie-talkie, one that I could use to talk to my friends who lived a couple of blocks away, because, of course, we didn't have cell phones, and I could also pick up truckers' radios. Apparently, CB radios were incredibly popular, especially in the 1970s. CB radios made up about 30% of Radio Shack's revenue during that time. One time, a sister and I listened in on some truckers' conversations on my walkie-talkie from Radio Shack, which had a very long antenna, and I distinctly remember someone saying, Rear, rear, your pants are on fire. That was something my sister and I would randomly insert into our conversations with each other as we uh, grew up. Not sure what was meant by that statement, but maybe it was some kind of secret trucker code. Who knows? I will never know. Actually, I'll never know the answer to that. Anyways, I also purchased a Zenith TV VCR combo here that I had for many years that I used to watch Tybo on when I was in college. I also purchased miscellaneous electronic equipment that you couldn't find anywhere else, like certain plugs. So, you know, if you lost your charter to something, it was really hard to replace unless you lived near a radio shack. Eventually, they shifted their focus to cell phones, which was initially a good business move, but it would eventually backfire. 
Signing up customers for cell phones took a long time and occupied salespeople's time, which took away from other customers coming to their stores for other items. This frustrated their core base of customers who started to shop elsewhere. Cell phone companies also started to open up their own businesses, and that left Radio Shack hanging. Further, as more companies started to sell items online and offering home delivery, Radio Shack opted to not jump on that bandwagon, which was a huge mistake. They offered in-store pickup slash delivery, but not home delivery. Further, their website only provided information as to where their locations were, but you were not able to online shop. The company also changed their name to simply The Shack, which did not go over well. The Shack sounds like a place that you would not want to be after sun goes down, or maybe as a place to buy fish. Both not good. Anyways, they filed for bankruptcy in both 2015 and 2017. When the stores closed, some were purchased by Sprint and Amazon. A few Radio Shacks are still open through a partnership some Express stores opened and are apparently still in operation. They do have an online presence, like so many defunct brands, at RadioShack.com. Circuit City got its start in 1949 in Richmond, Virginia by Sam Wurzel. While getting his hair cut, believe it or not, his barber told him about a new television center that opened in Richmond. He then had a light bulb moment. Or perhaps his circuits fired. That was bad. I feel like I say that a lot, but I like to make bad jokes. Anyways, through some connections he had, he started selling televisions out of a tire store and eventually sold washing machines, stoves, and refrigerators as well. The business was originally called Ward's TV. They offered something unique for lower-income families, the chance to pay for items via payment plans. The company also instituted free in-home demonstrations. Genius. For example, a salesman would visit and show a family how to maybe use a television. He would then leave said television with a family overnight, and of course, they almost always bought it. In the 1970s, the company shifted from Ward's TV to Circuit City Superstore as its name and had the more stereotypical superstore or big box store set up, if you will. You may remember their famous shiny and bright red entrances. At its peak, Circuit City was incredibly successful and was a model for how to run a business. In the year 2000, they employed about 60,000 people and had 616 locations across the United States. I remember having friends get their CD players installed in their cars at Circuit City. However, within just a few short years, a series of bad business decisions led to the company's ultimate demise. For example, to cut back on costs, Circuit City fired all of its commissioned sales force employees. They were truly experts in their respective departments. They also ceased the sale of appliances, which proved to be a huge mistake. By 2008, the company declared bankruptcy, and by 2009, all of their locations closed. You can still find their items for sale online. Linens and Things was founded in 1975 in New Jersey. They sold home accessories like blankets, towels, etc. My first dining room table in my first apartment was from Linens and Things. I was quite proud of it. At its peak, it had 570 stores in the United States and Canada and competed with Bed Bath & Beyond. For a time, you know, you really had to pick one. It was either the Chicago Cubs or the Chicago White Sox, or were you team Bed Bath & Beyond or were you team Linens & Things? You couldn't do both. And by the way, the beyond of Bed Bath & Beyond seemed to be silk flowers, which lined the walls. I don't know if you remember that, but there was... A million silk flowers for sale 
at Bed Bath & Beyond at one point. Several acquisitions led to his demise, and by 2008, all the stores closed. This led to lots of bad puns and article titles like It's Curtains for Linens and Things, Clean Sheets, Too Many Things, Not Enough Linens, etc. Even The Onion, the satirical newspaper, got in on the fun. I found a really hilarious article sort of mocking linens and things, and I will say in advance that um, I'm going to read that article, and there are some expletive words in there, nothing too crazy, but just want you to be warned that I will be using some adult language here in just a moment. So you may want to skip ahead a little bit. This was an article that ran in The Onion again, which is a satire newspaper. This is obviously not true uh, in 2008. The title of the article is New Linens and Shit Opens. Macon, Georgia. Linens and Shit, the nation's largest retailer of bedsheets, tablecloths, and a wide assortment of other shit, will open its new location Tuesday morning at the Macon Mall. We are excited to open our first store in the Macon area, and we encourage shoppers to arrive early and check out all of our great linens and shit, said Robert Barlow, the company's senior vice president. We're proud to offer the local community the best selection of the name brand shit you want at the prices you love. We've got all sorts of shit, Barlow added. Bath shit, kitchen shit, shit for the bedroom, seasonal shit, and all the other shit you could possibly imagine, plus linens. The store is scheduled to open its doors at 6 a.m. The first 100 customers will receive a bunch of free shit. The 55,000-square-foot facility features 12 full-service checkout lanes and six express lanes, four kiosks to register shit for important events, and dozens of aisles stacked floor-to-ceiling with an estimated 650 tons of shit. Kenneth Resch, manager of the Macon store, said that if customers cannot find shit in the right color or size, the shit they need can be located in heaping piles of overstock shit in the linens and shit warehouse. Anything not available at our retail location can easily be purchased from our online store at linenandshit.com, Reach said. We've got a crap load of shit there. Resch, who oversaw the hiring process for the store's 120 full-time and part-time employees, praised his staff's friendly and helpful service as well as its willingness to sort through enormous bins of shit in order to match the right shit to the customer's needs. Customers who got a sneak peek at the new store during its silent opening Friday evening were impressed. Look at all this great shit, said Macon resident Joy Anderson, who claims she usually spends an average of $500 a month on linens and other shit. Whenever we wanted to buy a ton of shit before, we had to go all the way out to the Galleria Mall in Centerville. But now we've got all the shit we need right here. Although a sluggish market has forced many large format retailers to scale back their operations and even close locations, linens and shit insists that the economy will not prevent the store from providing the customer with the superior quality linens, storage and organizational shit, framed crap, and some foreign-made designer bullshit. We've always had a simple strategy of selling shit and linens to people, and we don't intend to stop now, CEO Henry Considine said. This company has weathered both the credit crisis and the housing market crash because no matter how bad the economy gets, consumers will always continue to buy shit. In response to the overwhelmingly positive reaction to linens and shit stores, the company plans to sell excess shit as well as irregular or slightly imperfect crap at their new shit and shit factory outlets. End quote. And there's also a sort of fake linens and shit advertisement also as a part of the article and it says, great shit, Black & Decker, best bullshit, 1999, back to school, crap for less, 20% off all shit. I'll post a link to this article in the show notes. It's 
Please, I hope you're not offended by me reading that article. I think it's pretty funny. And by editing out some of those words, I think it kind of changes the hilarity of the article. But anyways, Linens and Things does sell items online, though, now. The Sports Authority was created in 1928, and at the time it was referred to as the Guard Brothers. They sold fishing rods and reels. Eventually, the company evolved into the Sports Authority through a merger and opened their first location in Florida. By 1990, there were eight large stores primarily in Florida. Later that year, Kmart acquired the company, and by 1991, with expansion, the company finally started to see a profit. They once had 460 stores across the United States, and it was the nation's largest independent sporting goods retailer. When I was growing up, I constantly played sports, and so we were at Sports Authority relatively frequently, and uh, one time I actually vomited outside the store. And uh, every time we drove by, my sister would tell me, remember when you threw up outside of Sports Authority? And I'd say, thanks a lot for reminding me. Anyways, a series of bad buyout plans and restructuring plans that weren't effective led to the company's downfall. They filed for bankruptcy in 2016. Dick Sporting Goods, though, won a bid for their name and intellectual property. The company was started by Charles Lazarus. He returned home after World War II and had a gut feeling that a baby boom was going to happen. He thought that he should sell items that would help families, so he started to sell cribs, strollers, and the like out of his father's bicycle shop. It eventually evolved into its own store called Children's Bargain Town in Washington, D.C. They started to add toys to the lineup to help lure customers back, since oftentimes, once parents bought a high chair, for example, they would use it for their second child and, you know, wouldn't need to return to the store. In 1957, he opened the first Toys R Us, the first of its kind, a big box store for all things toys. It was laid out sort of like a grocery store, much different than the mom and pop toy stores that most people were familiar with. At one point, it was the first in the nation for the sale of toys for kids and babies. They had several offshoots like Kids R Us and Babies R Us. Kids R Us opened in 1983 and stayed in business until 2003. There were 146 Kids R Us stores, and they sold children's and teen clothing. My sister and I went there all the time for back-to-school shopping. The chain had one of the most memorable commercial jingles of all time that I think most people my age and my my parents' age, probably periodically get stuck in their heads all of these years later. I don't want to grow up on a Toys R Us kid. They got a million toys and toys R Us that I can play with. I don't want to grow up on a Toys R Us kid. They got the best for so much as you really flip your lid. From bikes to trains to video games, it's the biggest toy store there is. She wins! I don't want to grow up, cause baby, if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us kid. Eventually, they started to lose business due to online retailers like Amazon. In 2017, the company filed for bankruptcy and closed their locations. They recently tried to reestablish stores in the United States, but that was unfortunately unsuccessful. Carson Peary Scott, or Carson's, as the locals called it, was founded in Amboy, Illinois in 1854 by Samuel Carson and John T. Peary, who were two Scott-Irish immigrants. In the 1860s, their sales reached $800,000. In 1890, Robert Scott joined on as a partner, and the business name as we know it was born. By 1900, they had two downtown Chicago locations, each employed about 1,000 people. 
In the 1960s, there were 11 locations around Chicago, and there were 8,000 employees and $150 million in annual sales. They once had a location on State Street in downtown Chicago. It was 974,000 square feet. The store sold a variety of items, but was primarily clothes and accessories for men, women, and children, as well as items for the home and recreation. More specifically, though, at one time in various parts of the store, you could find an ascot shop, a fur salon, a Scandinavian shop, a clock shop, records, and pet supplies. At its peak, there were 51 stores, primarily in the Midwest. In 1989, the department store was acquired by P.A. Bergner and Company. They operated Myers Brothers, Charles V. Wise, Bergner's, and the Boston store chain. By 1991, P.A. Bergner filed for bankruptcy. In 1998, ownership shifted to Saks Incorporated and eventually to Bonton in 2006. In 2018, all the stores that were liquidated, most stores were given just 10 to 12 weeks notice of closure. There is, amazingly enough, a Carson's website if you need to get your Carson's fix. And speaking of the Boston store, the Boston store dates back to 1897 when Julius Simon moved to Milwaukee, opened a small store at North 3rd Street and West Highland Avenue. Three years later, he moved to the infamous Milwaukee location that people came to know and love. And if you're not familiar with Milwaukee, Milwaukee is a fantastic city in Wisconsin. At first, the store sold carpets, shoes, and fabrics. Two other store merchants named Carl Hertzfeld and Nathan Stone bought out Simon and renamed the store the Boston Store. They used to deliver orders via horse-drawn trucks. By the late 1960s, there were five Milwaukee locations. The flagship store at one time had eight floors. The basement had tapes and records. On the first floor, you could find wine and men's clothing. There was even a golf and ski shop. At one point, the Boston store had the second largest department store warehouse in the country. Toward the end of the chain's run, they had a similar fate to Carson Peary Scott, and by 2018, all the Boston chains had been liquidated. And once again, you can find them online. Lord & Taylor The origins of Lord & Taylor date back to 1826 with a gentleman by the name of Samuel Lord. He was originally from England and was orphaned when he was just six years old. He ended up working in a local foundry. The foundry was owned by Mr. James Taylor. Lord ended up marrying Taylor's daughter and moved to New York City. Lord ended up opening a dry goods store and soon his wife's cousin, George Washington Taylor, joined him and thus, Lord & Taylor was officially born. Lord & Taylor were known for its quality products, and as popularity grew, so too did the flagship store. In 1914, for example, Lord & Taylor moved to a 550,000-square-foot building on 5th Avenue and 38th Street. Its Italian Renaissance style was a true marvel of architectural brilliance and beauty. One unique characteristic of this building, which is just genius, is that its display windows could actually be lowered to the basement so they could be redecorated and then relifted upstairs. It also had a garden on the rooftop for employees. The chain grew to dozens of stores all over the United States. There were locations in Illinois, Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Maryland, Florida, Michigan, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. My mom and I were in a fashion show together in the early 1980s, and I believe it was for Lord & Taylor, or maybe it was Spiegel. I can't remember. But nonetheless, yes, I was once a model for about five minutes. Anyways, after over 100 years in operation in August of last year, it was announced that Lord & Taylor would be liquidated. 
An investment firm bought the company and began selling their items online. Also, you can apparently purchase Lord & Taylor items at Walmart. Or at least at Walmart.com. Ouch. The Venture stores were primarily a Midwest-based company which had large discount stores. It started in 1970 and was developed to compete directly with Target, which is also, you know, as we know, a well-known discount store chain. My sister was obsessed with Target. Obsessed with Target. Anyways, you could purchase men's, women's, and children's clothing here as well. The first location opened in St. Louis, and stores in the Chicagoland area followed. The design and layout of the store resembled Target. The early stores even had lovely red carpet and red signage. In later years, their design scheme changed to bold stripes that were black and white, with Venture being written in white letters. The company would go on to open 70 locations. It was the largest and most popular chain in the Chicagoland area. Their merchandise offerings were similar to the New England equivalent of perhaps Rennie's or Christmas tree shops. At the peak of the store's popularity, there were over 100 locations. In the 1980s, the store chain slogan was, Save with Style. All you need for back to school is on sale now at Venture. Pack a backpack, $4.99. Scoop up M&M's Big Two Pound Bag, $3.29. Dazzle them in Paul's Hottest Penny Loafers, Lady Sizes, $8.99. Speak and Spell or Speak and Math, just $36.99. Get into P.S. Catano Jeans, just $9.77. And register to win a Yamaha for motor scooter. Back to school means back to savings through Saturday at Venture. You could purchase food and drinks in Venture at a little restaurant. These venues were called Cafe Venture. You could get popcorn, hot dogs, and soda there. Or pop, as it's called in the Midwest. As other discount chains started to grow in popularity, Venture tried to update their stores and remodel them to resemble Kohl's. Can they think of their own idea? God, stealing ideas from Target and Kohl's? Jeez, Venture. They filed for bankruptcy in 1998, and all locations were closed within just a few months. The location that my mom took us to apparently closed in 1995 and is now home to TJ Maxx, Best Buy, and Home Goods. Many closed venture locations turned into Super Kmarts, which were popular at the time, and one of the reasons why venture went out of business, as it was hard to compete not only with Kmart, but also Target and Walmart. Marshall Fields, or Fields, as it was known to locals and my grandmother, was one of the best department stores that I remember growing up. I have a very strong emotional attachment to the store. Both of my grandmothers were avid Marshall Field shoppers. When we visited my grandmother, who lived in Chicago for many years, we were always so excited to take the subway to the lower level of the store and go shopping. And I think it was also at the Marshall Fields that had one of those humongous paper towel things to dry your hands on where it wasn't paper towel but it was a big piece of fabric that you dry your hands on and you would just kind of yank it down to get a new section that is so unsanitary and so disgusting but i remember using that anyways the store was opened in 1852 by potter palmer in chicago and was originally a dry goods store the original store burned down twice once in 1871 and again in 1887 the company also survived the great depression The company's resiliency coupled with outstanding customer service allowed it to grow over its 100 years of being in operation. By 1912, the Marshall Fields flagship store took up an entire city block in Chicago. 
The flagship store was absolutely stunning. It featured a Tiffany ceiling, bronze-plated placards, and clocks. At one time, it was one of the largest retail spaces in the world with almost 75 acres worth of floor space spread out over an incredible 14 floors. Some of the items you could purchase at Marshall Fields at one time included appliances, dining room furniture, furs, wigs, and toys. You could also get your hair cut here. Some areas of the store also had designations. For example, at one point, the teen section was called Teen Scene. Yeah, Teen Scene. You wouldn't find me there as a teenager. This also reminded me of Teen Central, which is what the young adult section of our local library was called when my sister and I were in high school. My sister and I would not be caught dead in a place called Teen Central. We would often make fun of it. Hey, do you want to go get some books at Teen Central, Teen Central, Teen Central? Teen Central's awesome. Not really. And the Teen Central was written in neon lights and there were beanbag chairs. It was so stereotypical. And I think 10-year-old hung out there. Anyways, there was also a section called Young Chicago, and they had after five o'clock dresses. There were 28 fitting room areas. The first ever restaurant to open in a department store was in Marshall Fields. It was a high-end restaurant called the Walnut Room. The restaurant was extremely elaborate. It featured Russian and Australian chandeliers. Since the store was located near the theater district in Chicago, people would often go to the Walnut Room for dinner or drinks before taking in a show. I went to the Walnut Room once in my life. And I don't know why I remember this, but I'm pretty sure that I ordered a chicken Caesar salad. And although I no longer eat meat or dairy and haven't in a long time, it was a pretty darn good salad, if I do remember correctly. I went through a big chicken Caesar salad phase which is really important for you to know. One thing that Marshall Fields was well known for was their Frango Mints. They were created by the Frederick and Nelson department stores in 1918. The company and trademark were purchased by Marshall Fields in the 1920s, and the recipe was introduced in stores in 1929. For at least 70 years, they were made in large melting pots located on the 13th floor of the flagship store. And in case you're not familiar with Frango Mints, they are chocolate candies with mint inside, and they are absolutely delicious. And my grandmother, who lived in Chicago for decades, used to always buy them for us, and we were so excited to get them. In the 1930s, Marshall Fields introduced escalators and got rid of some elevators. If you needed to purchase a nice outfit, a television, or a kitchen table, all of which would be of very high quality, Marshall Fields was a place to go. Now at Marshall Fields, discover great savings on every Sony television set. Choose from a vast assortment of models and sizes. Save on every Trinitron color set, all with Sony's fine electronic tuning. Or choose Sony black and white sets, including some with built-in AM-FM radios and cassette recorders. And for the finest in home entertainment, save on Sony's Betamax video recorder. Now's the time to shop and save during the fabulous Sony sale at Marshall Fields. Brides often registered here for wedding gifts, especially their fine china. Generations of families shopped at Marshall Fields, my family included. It was truly a special experience to go there. In 2005, Marshall Fields was bought by the Federated Department Stores and it was gone forever. The flagship store was replaced by Macy's, and although a lot of the staples from the original Marshall Fields store still remain, 
it was very upsetting to Chicagoans when the store transitioned. Thankfully, though, Frango mints are still made there, and the Walnut Room remains in operation. I wonder if they still have chicken Caesar salad. I'm sure it's just as delicious now as it was in 1994. I hope you've enjoyed this look back on the extinct apartment and big box stores, which were an integral part of the retail history of the Midwest and in many instances, the United States and abroad as well. I have always been fascinated by abandoned and defunct businesses for some reason, especially those that occupy my childhood memories. Before you could order items with a push of a finger on a phone or computer, we had to go out to a shopping mall or perhaps an expansive department store to get what we needed. Although I can certainly appreciate the convenience of places like Amazon, especially during the pandemic, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nostalgic for a simpler, more social time where it required a little more legwork to get what you needed. Or a little more conveyor belt work. Anyways, I think there are many people who would agree with me. If you are enjoying the Pop Culture Retrospective podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. I'm currently using Google Podcasts in case you were wondering. Please also rate the show as it helps direct more listeners to the show. You can contact me anytime. My email address is popcultureretrospective at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at popcultureretro, and I'm also on Instagram, popcultureretrospective. I hope you'll join me for my next show, where we will be discussing the story behind one of me and my sister's all-time favorite rap groups, Salt and Peppa. And you're only a true fan if you know that it's Peppa not pepper. Anyways, until then, be kind, be safe, and hold on to your memories. Kenneth Resch, manager of the Macon store, said that if customers cannot find shit in the right color or size, the shit they need can be located in the heaping piles of overstock shit in the linens and shit warehouse. <laughs> Kenneth Resch, manager of the Macon store, said that if customers cannot find shit in the right color or size, the shit they need can be located in heaping piles of overstock shit in the linens and shit warehouse. (laughs) This is funny. Anything not available at a retail location can be... Anything not available at a retail location can easily be purchased from our online store at linenandshit.com, Reach said. We've got a crap load of shit there. In response to the overwhelmingly positive reaction to linens and shit stores, the company plans to sell excess shit as well as irregular or slightly imperfect crap at their new shit and shit factory outlets. (laughs) I can't do the shit and shit.